The training competition rules for those participating are as follows. Four scoring categories. Most ascent over the month, fastest 5k, furthest total distance over the month, furthest distance in competitive races, two non-scoring categories, lowest scoring competitor of the month, honorable effort considering physical and other limitations. Competition period runs throughout each calendar month, only runs included, no cycling, family walks etc. We are back. Nick, can you keep your bounce for other BGR pages, to spare the sanity of our more serious team members? Sorry team leader, kiss. 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 It's the 3rd of January 2019. And, uh... I am on my way back to see Helen Hall for a run session, my second run session As the dust settles on another underwhelming New Year's Eve, our Bob Graham focus sharpens ahead of our scheduled attempt in six months and 21 days time. Did I have New Year's resolutions? Well, scrolling back through the years in the notes app on my phone, yes I blummin' well did. New Year's Eve 2014. One. Make more eye contact. 2. Save money for a house deposit. 3. Cycle 10,000 miles. Run 5k in under 17 minutes and 10k in under 36 minutes. Great South run in under 1 hour. I actually did 8,620 miles on my bike. I did a 5k in 1752 and I didn't run anything else. New Year's Eve 2015. 1. This is it. Be in the moment. Wear your best clothes now. 2. Fuck it. Let go. Don't get too hung up on routine. Go into work later sometimes. You don't have to eat muesli every day. 3. It is what it is. I won't beat myself up about perceived failures. I'll relate to people as an adult and not throw tantrums. 4. Do an Ironman. I worked on 1-3 to three, but never did that Ironman. Too expensive. New Year's Eve 2016. Be a great dad. Be a great husband. Look for a new job. Mm, can't really comment on one and two, you'd have to ask others. I didn't get another job, but I did go on a one-day podcasting course. And here I am. 2017. Don't go outside in my slippers. Tick. Success. 2018. Put in a new kitchen. Yes. Done. And finally, 2019. Number one. Start running. Number two. Continue running without injury. Number three. Complete the Bob Graham round. What could be simpler? About two days ago, obviously, with this visit booked in with Helen, uh, I, I then sort of think, oh, yeah, better get going again. So I've done a couple of the stretches, and I've jogged down the hill again at work for the last couple of days. But I've done that using my new minimally shoes. So I can just I can feel my Achilles is a bit sore again, and I've got that feeling of dread of thinking oh no why why is it not just perfect now? should have listened to vasos before christmas if it ain't broke don't fix it and i don't want to jinx it i don't want to be a bloke who's injured because he tried something you know don't try and be too clever here i am really wanting with with bloody loads of new kit that i got for christmas as well you know i've got as well as the new minimally shoes i've uh, bought some really good trail running shoes I've got a new waterproof a head torch uh, I've got my running rucksack thing so I want to get going and I want to train and uh, I can see from other people's stravas that they're striding ahead 
doing lots of work and I want to be fit enough to be a part of it. The other thing I'm, uh, I'm sort of uh, looking for, I'm hoping from Helen uh, this time, is after speaking to uh, a Darren Ann Finn, he, after just getting given a couple of drills, found that his Achilles problem just went, which I'm jealous of. He's got that. A Darren Ann is the guest in this week's episode, coming up in a moment, so you can hear about his miracle cure from Achilles pain, with input from one of Helen Hall's mentors. Oh, the stuff of dreams for me. I'm sort of hoping that um, I can just talk to Helen and say, what are the kind of really key drills that I should just be doing all the time? And then um, I can keep doing them and hopefully I won't get the return to the um, injury and I will see a sort of rapid improvement in my running. Right, I'm desperate for the loo and I've arrived. So um, speak to you afterwards. Right, so I've just left uh, Helen's and feel much better. Did some running. So I still, at this stage, 3rd of January, feel like I might still make the start line in June, end of, for BGR 2019. I was thinking about fatigue and minds fuddled. And of course, we must count in, I didn't put it in any notes, you must count in the fact that your brain and your body had just gone through wearisome early shifts and you were looking forward to them ending. So that will have had a bearing on the way that you were able to get your body and brain to cooperate as in it was a struggle because the brain was tired and the body was tired and the combination is never great. But you can Grounded by Helen's wise words and full of New Year enthusiasm, let's go. Hi, it's the 26th of January 2019. I'm pretty pissed off. Oh dear. Uh, with running in general, I think. I've just been for a really short jog up and down the road, you know, walk for about five minutes and then a jog walk for 10 paces, jog, walk for 10 paces, just to try and get moving again. I've cycled for the last three weeks, 205 miles, then 176 miles, then this week 198 miles. So I feel like I'm fit cardiovascularly, I back up to speed after the sort of Christmas layoff for a couple of weeks. So uh, certainly, you know, another two weeks of cycling, I'll be kind of as fit as I get, really. But yeah, a little jog down the street and my calf hurts and I feel annoyed when I look at the Bob Graham WhatsApp group because everyone's buying new shoes and running fast on the hills and planning long-distance races and I'm still hobbling up and down the street. So I kind of feel like I don't care about the Bob Graham thing at all at the moment. I don't really care about running, you know. Cycling to work keeps me fit. I I can't really fit in running very easily. So, you know, having cycled 44 miles, I then got to try and go for a run in the evening when you're tired and it's January and it's dark and cold. It's not very easy. So then what do I do? Do I not cycle to work and drive to work just to prioritise doing some crappy running uh, that seems totally illogical the other thing i'm pissed off about i think is trying to do barefoot shoes or ah the nub of it if it ain't broke don't fix it i don't want to be a bloke who's injured because he tried something bloody vassos why did i not listen yeah i hate running hi 
and welcome to our podcast about the Bob Graham Round. A 66-ish mile run in the Lake District up and over 42 of England's tallest mountains in under 24 hours. Recorded throughout 2018 and 2019, this is an audio account of a year preparing for and attempting the BGR. These are our Bob Graham sounds. I was supposed to send you this podcast from the top of a mountain at the weekend in the Lake District, but because I was on top of a mountain, I forgot. So I'm now doing it in a, a little box room in uh, in our offices, which is uh, not quite as lovely. But I had a fantastic time. I did legs one and two, plus some other stuff. I'm feeling okay about the BGR, not massively confident, but at the same point in the last few years, I've, I think I've basically given in and said oh not not this year so um not spectacular but solid yeah so it was uh, so it was good no particular lessons i don't think other than i'm looking forward to doing it without a massive pack on my back because uh, yeah that that completely weighed me uh, weighed me down doing it on my own but it was good fun and yeah looking forward to uh, the next lot of training i think mark might be even more calming than helen you can see why he's earned the moniker of team leader come on bob lad chin up let's go Now, let's listen to that chat with running author Adaranand Finn, who I met near the Guardian newspaper offices where he works part-time, and of course we had this conversation inside a Waitrose cafe. He's easygoing, super smiley, chuckles gently. I'm always a little bit nervous before interviews, but this one turned out to be an absolute joy. Adaranand? Yeah, perfect pronunciation. Good. Adaranand Finn, uh, author, as I'm sure everybody knows, of Running with the Kenyans and The Way of the runner the follow-up book and there's a new one on the way the rise of the ultra runners a journey to the edge of human endurance <laughs> which sounds fantastically dramatic yeah so we, we worked long and hard on that subtitle yeah. yeah so that book is out now it was shortlisted for the sports book of the year and a brand new bargain paperback edition with new cover art is being published this month january 2020 i'm a neat and tidy reader aka a bit of a fussy pain in the ass. I have to finish the book I'm on before I can allow myself to start another, and I tend to read them in the order I got them, or, with my strong northern delaying gratification streak, I read them in the order I believe I should do, which means the hard work ones first. So, when I got to Adaranan's book, having obviously years ago enjoyed his previous ones, it was like putting on a warm, wordy sweater, a pair of comfy literary slippers, familiar, funny relatable just a lovely enjoyable read the guests and the info that he gives you about ultra running weren't all ones i'd heard before i call this the lance armstrong syndrome there was a time a few years back when i was sort of addicted to reading watching or listening to investigations into that doping scandal in cycling and they were all telling me the same things but i couldn't stop reading them anyway this is not like that after i'd read it i gave my copy to beanie for christmas I am 78% of the way through and am absolutely loving it. My favourite of his books so far. A great choice, thank you. In fact I love it so much, I was going to ask if you'd mind if I offered it up to the group. Would you mind recording a few seconds of review verbally and sending to me? It can be as short as those texts or a bit more lyrical. And yes of course offer away. And here is some of that review from Beanie. Note how when he starts he's not sure how to pronounce it Aranand. So instead says... The author is about to set off on a 78-mile trail race through Cortina in Italy. He's on the start line, and as he describes it, here everyone looks fit, mean, with that I've seen things look in their eye. 
rather than try to push myself into the crowd huddling around the start with plenty of time still to go i find a bench in the shadows off to the side and sit down it'll be good for me to start near the back to stop me shooting off with the elite runners like one of those riderless horses at the grand national who think they're in the race but actually have no idea what they're doing that final sentence reminds me so much of how a woefully underplanned laughably abysmal first attempt at the bob graham and it's typical of the really beautiful writing throughout this book whether you've read it already or not this interview is rich and rewarding it's the audio anecdotal delve into the time adaranan spent running ultras and hanging out with the world's best ultra runners at the world's biggest and most famous races. So in a nutshell, you like to kind of go method. You, you yeah. go to Kenya or you go to Japan. Where have you gone and what have you done for this? Yeah, well, so this time I didn't go to a ge- geographical place, but I went to the world of ultra runners uh, and ultra running. And as a runner, I'd always been, it's always been something that's been there in the, in the distance to one side, ultra running. I've done six or seven marathons. I was never that attracted to ultra running. It just seemed a little bit too mad to me. Yeah. but. Two things kind of prompted me to do it. One, I ended up running a, an ultra marathon for an article. Uh, I did the, the Oman Desert Marathon. I can't even remember what year, about 2014 or 2015. And uh, I met a guy on, on that. We had a great time. It was a really good experience. How long is that one? It's, a, it's 165 kilometers, but over six days. So okay. On paper, it doesn't look that difficult. It's like 25K a day. But when you're running on sand the whole way, it starts adding up and you're carrying everything you need as well. Okay. So you're carrying a big heavy bag. Uh, but this Italian guy, he, he, we were just talking, you'd have half the, most of the afternoon just to sit around chatting in these beautiful Berber tents in the desert. So it was a, it's a wonderful experience. There's just fascinating characters all over the place, everywhere you look. And this Italian guy said to me, he said, well, if you go to the crazy places, you meet the crazy people. And that kind of stuck, stuck in my head, yeah. And, and thinking about somewhere to go, yeah, <laughs> and experience somewhere crazy is always a good start. Uh, and then the other thing that prompted it, I was uh, so I work part time at the Guardian as a news editor. I was at the tea point, and someone who'd obviously heard about that I had something to do with running said, "Oh, you run, uh, you run ultramarathons, don't you?" And I said, "No, no, because I, <laughs> I hadn't at that point." He said, oh, what, triathlons? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, what, just marathons? <laughs> and I suddenly thought, yeah, just marathons. So we, I, I realized that there was this inflation going on generally in, in the world of running and in people's perception of running, that yeah. marathons were no longer a big deal, that there was this world of ultra running that was becoming more and more uh, obvious to people. It was, it was something people were seeing other people doing. That's because more people were doing it. And then when I started looking into the figures, the, the, de- the numbers were quite staggering. And the last 10 years in terms of participation in terms of the number of events pretty much globally it's risen about a thousand percent in in every dyna- uh, every way you look at it wow so here's a really fast growing sport that looks completely uh, crazy and, and and extreme yet all these people are doing it this idea of craziness <laughs> was attractive 
So I just thought, what the hell? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dive in there. I'm a runner, you know. Yeah. Or what have I got to lose? I, I can handle this, surely. Was was my uh, was my thought, <laughs> which didn't necessarily prove to be true. Okay, brilliant. I look forward to uh, reading it, but also hearing some of the stories now, hopefully. So, what? Why do you think uh, ultra running has gone so crazy? Is it social media? Is it easier to run slowly for a long, long time? Is that what makes it more appealing? Yeah, I mean, both those things are true. Uh, I did a lot of talking to people about why why the increase was there. There's a kind of natural inflation, so the more people run marathons, the more people will look to do something more impressive than wow. everyone else is doing. Uh, partly to, to get sponsorship, you can't really go around your office anymore asking for money because you're running a marathon. No. I mean, you can, but it's, it's getting harder because everybody's run a marathon. And then the social media, as far as I could tell, played a very big role. Uh, more people, I, a lot of people I spoke to, and it's a tr- tricky one because a lot of people wouldn't possibly admit or accept that uh, that social media had had a role in there and they're yeah. taking up ultra running or pursuing ultra running. So it was it was a difficult a- area to look at, but there were enough people who would admit it, and other people who claimed other people <laughs> did it for that reason. But I got this sense that. People are looking, you know, in this world, in one world, people are kind of out there. They've, they've got themselves, everyone's got themselves as a brand online. They've got yeah. an Instagram feed, a Facebook page, and they want to look like they're having a great time, and they want to look like they're having a great life. And I know from my own experience, when I did the first ultra run, the Oman Desert Marathon, the people who didn't know anything about running, particularly, they were so impressed. I mean, people were, you're, I mean, you're amazing. Oh my God, you must be <laughs> Superman. And I was like, actually, it wasn't. <laughs> I was more impressed with my 10K time, personally. And his time for 10K is 34 minutes, which is impressive. But like you'd give someone my, I'd tell someone my 10K time, and they're just like, yeah, but that's only 10K. Like my, my grandfather runs 10K. What's yeah. the big deal there? So it is a very surefire way of uh, impressing people. But there was obviously a lot more to it than that because, and I, I found there was this dynamic, and I wondered if this was part of the reason why ultra runs have such a high dropout rate, is because it looks amazing. It looks like incredible. Even just telling people you're going to do it impresses people. So yeah. you're already instant kudos there. And you do all the training and you, you know, you, you, you're in this hardcore realm. But once you get into the race and once you get out there, you know, 20 hours into a run in a mountain in the middle of the night, none of that matters anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't really, this social media kudos means nothing at that point. And so a lot of people drop out, but then you start having this much more profound experience. Uh, so I think it's not all about superficial reasoning. There, no. there, is, there is an experience in ultra running, I think, which is much, is much more profound than even a marathon or, or a 10K, where I, I kind of thought about it in that a marathon or a 10K, the ideal state is, to get, is where everything's functioning and you're in this state of flow. This is often described as flow, where you're just flowing and everything's moving and you're kind of moving as you were designed to, as a human was designed to, running efficiently, smoothly, that's the dream. I mean, yeah. not everyone achieves that. But uh, but in an ultra run, you get way beyond that. I mean, and, and almost the goal of people who do ultra runs is to get beyond that, it's to get to the point where everything's breaking down and everything's been destroyed. And then you start learning something else, something new about yourself. So you start learning about what your limits are, what you're capable of. Are you capable of overcoming what you thought you were your limits? Uh, a lot of ultra runners call it the pain cave. They say they and they say they love the pain cave. They love digging in the pain cave, and 
I, I was kind of scared of that idea when I first started. The idea of the pain cave slightly terrified me. I like the idea of finishing an ultra run yeah. and being this hero. <laughs> but I wasn't sure about going through the, the torment of getting there. And, and as it turned out, so I ended up running about 10 ultra marathons, culminating in the UTMB, which is 105 miles in the Alps. Wow. And I did that all pretty quickly. I went from just having run a marathon to running UTMB in about 18 months, which is quite steep progression. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've enjoyed about reading your books, and I, I once listened to you give a talk about the first book, Running with the Kenyans, in Portsmouth on the day before the Great South Run. Oh, yeah. That was in October 2012 at the Portsmouth Book Fest on a Saturday afternoon. I had dragged my then seven-year-old son along. He was fairly bored of dad's running thing by the end. And I think you were sort of applying your newfound Kenyan-inspired training routine and, and running style and were running really well at that point and you wanted yeah. to break an hour, which I think you yeah, did. I did actually. And yeah. breaking an hour has always been a, a real target for me for yeah. the Great South. And I've, when I've been fit enough, the weather's been against me and the yeah. wind in my face has slowed me down. So I'm sort of 61 minutes 13 oh, is so as, close. as close as I've got. Um, so I, I relate to, I feel like I relate to you yeah. as being a very similar standard yeah. runner. Yeah to me when you do things like a 10k it's just super painful mm. nearly all the way through mm. when you do a marathon it's relatively easy for the first part yeah. but but boring you're trying to kind of calm yeah. yourself down and what have it's you it's almost the big challenge is to slow yourself down yes and, and then it gets hard for that mm. that last part mm. trying to keep to the to the target you set yourself mm. but it is all about the target it's yeah. all about the time yeah um, so with the ultra the time sometimes i guess is out the window it's kind of just finishing the distance yeah. But is the first 70 miles the boring part that you've just got to get out of the way before the last 30? Well, I think about, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you do, it does feel pretty easy at the start of an ultra. I mean, they say go and it's it's almost comical sometimes how slowly you start. Right. It's like this isn't really a race. The thing about ultra, you're going so slow, you can talk, you can chat. So if you find someone, I mean, not, you don't always find someone. I ran a couple of, well, one particular race in the south of France where nobody seemed to be in the mood to talk to me in English anyway. But a, quite a few of the races, you end up just ending up chatting with someone, and the hours pass. And there's a lot of usually they're in beautiful places more often than not. Yeah. So the scenery is worth looking looking at, and, and you get this sense you're on a journey, and, and you're monitoring your feeding, your eating, and drinking on the way. So that's something you've always got something to look forward to, and you're you're on this journey. But the difference with an ultra is yeah, that bit where it starts to be painful can kick in and you can still have a long way to go in time at least yeah and uh, so whereas in a marathon maybe you're feeling that for half an hour and then a 10k for 10 15 20 minutes presumably the first bit you can be okay on in an ultra run I mean I've, I've had more than 20 hours to go wow. <laughs> and being at the point where I feel like I can't even stand up out of my chair I'm in an aid station I can't I can't get up and I've got to get over mountains for 20 so it, it's the length of time you're, yeah, you're in that pain. But in terms of the beginning, but I, I, it's interesting. I did a 24-hour track race as well, and a lot of people, when I tell people about that, they say that must be so boring. Yeah. And it really was never boring, not for a minute. I don't know why. <laughs> it just becomes this, it's almost like time and distance. When you when you set out on something like that, you're not. You know, if I normally go for a run and I ran 10 laps of the track, I probably would find that quite boring. Yeah. But when you know you're going to be going around for 24 hours, it's like time and distance take on these different, they slightly warp and they take on these different perspectives. 
And so you're just in this warm-up mode, you're talking to people. The track race was actually quite fun because you had the same people, you'd run past them every 400 meters. Yeah. So you got to know everyone really well, the runners, the people counting the laps, your crew, other people's crew. I mean, it created this incredible spirit on the track. Yeah, actually. Well, I, mean, I think one of the appeals that I think a lot of people have talked about is the sense of community. I suppose, you know, if you do the London Marathon, there's a gazillion people there. Yeah. So although it's a, a lovely, uplifting experience, yeah. it doesn't feel very close. Yeah. To anybody, yeah. whereas if you're at an aid station 85 yeah. miles into a race, yeah. there's only you and a few people there, I suppose. Yeah. So it's a little bit more of a yeah, and also you spirit. stop and you sit down, and, and, and also you're very raw emotionally, particularly later in the race. So right. you, you know, you really you can find yourself hugging strangers or wanting to hug strangers, <laughs> and just people if someone helps you out, it just feels like the kindest thing you've ever experienced. So you feel a lot of uh, care for the, the people who are helping you, and you think, God, they're out here, and often they're out on the top of a mountain in the freezing cold and they're, yeah. they're just pouring you drinks and tying your shoelaces you're like what did I do to deserve this and also that fact that you're going slow so you can talk to the other runners you meet you meet people that you know I've met people on ultra runs that I'm still friends with and still communicate with who right. I didn't you know complete strangers just happen to be running next to them and it's a bit more um, gender equal as well isn't it yeah I mean the, the numbers are still a bit unequal in terms of participation but in terms of yeah, women seem to do quite well relative to you know shorter distances. Uh, I mean, there's lots of women, women winning outright ultra runs. Yeah. The latest and most significant incidence of the elite women operating on a par with, and indeed better than the men, is Jasmine Paris winning the spine race in 2019 in a course record that hasn't been beaten by John Kelly this year, despite him leading by 30 miles. So John set a new men's record of 87 hours, 53 minutes and 57 seconds. Which means the course record is Jasmine's. The women's record, four and a half hours faster, 83 hours, 12 minutes, 23 seconds. There can't be many sports where that is the case. I think the numbers are still quite skewed to, to men. I can't remember the figures offhand, but I think it was over 60% male still. So various reasons for that and issues behind that. But did you target certain races then? What sort of distances did you do and where did you go? Yeah, I mean, I tried to build it up. To, to run the UTMB, you've got to qualify. So you've got to run at least three qualifying races. So I, I found three qualifying races that worked in terms of when they were building up in the distance and also I wanted to kind of experience different races in different parts of the world so I wanted to do a race in America <coughs> there's a big ultra running scene in America so I did a, a race called the Miwok 100k in California uh, but there were a couple of other races I felt like I had to do as well uh, in amongst that one being the 24-hour track race yeah. the other being the Comrades Marathon in, in South Africa which is the biggest and the oldest ultra marathon in the world you get like 18,000 people running it yeah it's an incredible atmosphere it's, it's like being in one of those like a London Marathon style thing but I guess the fact maybe that you're running slower you're out there longer you're, you're kind of going through a more intense experience it seems it seems overwhelming actually at the time when you're. Is it hard to get places for these these days because there's so many people want to do them? Yeah, the comrades, I guess, because it has such a big field, is fairly easy to get into. As long as the, the, the entries open and they're usually open, they fill up within a couple of weeks. So it does it does fill up, but it's not like you have to do a lottery. The UTMB race I did, you need to, there's a limit on how many runners they can have in the race. So two and a half thousand runners. Right. So you have to run these qualifying races, which 
which are pretty tough. I ended up having to run a 100-mile race in the mountains as a qualifying race. Wow. <laughs> and you've got to finish them. You don't have to do them in a certain time, but you've got to finish them before the cutoffs. Okay. And then you get entered into a lottery, a bit like the London Marathon, so right. you've still only got a one in three chance of getting a place or something. Where are you now? Are you sort of a convert, or, or are you <laughs> just someone that's still that's gone back to just running my, you know, five or six miles regularly? Thank you very much. <laughs> so I'm not sure yet. I mean, it's still quite recent that I ran the UTMB. And my next challenge is a road marathon. I want to see if all this endurance, hopefully I've got this incredible endurance base, yeah. and I can add some speed to it and go and run a best marathon time is my next goal. So, did he run a best marathon time after all that ultra training? I emailed to find out. He replies, Huh, I never did try. Or not yet. I ran the Kingston Marathon in Jamaica, but I wasn't fit and it was a personal worst. I was down to do Manchester but got a slight injury about a month before and decided against it. I'm running another ultra, my first since the book in March, the Gaya Liagong by UTMB in China, and then we'll try that marathon PB, honest. I mean, I did love the experience of running ultra marathons, and I'd like to think I would do them again, but I'm not, I don't feel like, I wouldn't, don't feel like I'd introduce myself as an ultra runner. I feel okay. like it's an extremely, uh, to commit to running an ultra marathon is not, not just the training, but the whole process of, like the race itself can last two or three days. You usually need crews, you need to get other people out there to help you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are short ultrans. I'll definitely run short ultrans, 35, 40 miles. But right. these big ones where you're running 100 miles, you need, it takes a lot. My, you know, your mind, you know, set needs to be in the right place. And then for weeks afterwards, I mean, the, the first 100 mile run I ran in the uh, south of France, my toes felt like they had pins and needles for about six months afterwards. Wow. I like basically, I carried on running, I kept doing everything I did, it didn't seem to inhibit me, but there was like a, a long term or fairly medium term impact to that. Yeah. So, so you don't go into these things, I feel like, I, I can't go into these things lightly, it's not something like, like I could just sign up for a marathon and then, you know, 12 weeks later I could do it. And it yeah. It's not such a big, so it's a one day, I go there, spend, maybe spend the night there the day before, the running and come home. With an ultra it feels like, right, okay, we're in this for that. This is much more serious, much more involved process. So I know a lot of ultra runs I've spoken to, I spoke to, I've been for quite a few runs with Damien Hall, who's quite a well-known ultra runner in the UK. And he asked me if I was a convert, and he got very disappointed when I said, I, I don't know, I might not be. And he felt like, once you've experienced it, you know, yeah. how could you go back to running like a road race? But I do also like the feeling of just running, like, uninhibited. On, the, on a road, just everything is smooth, you get into a rhythm, yeah. you're actually just running. Nothing else is taking part taking place whereas in an ultra you're dealing with so many other things you know your mind is a huge thing which it is in America yeah. but it's much bigger in an ultra and you have you're to carry a lot of carrying as well, stuff so yeah so you can't run smoothly exactly you've got to pace yourself in a completely different way you've got to think about eating preparing food working out what food you need to eat and temperature conditions how you're going to cope with those the weather conditions I sometimes I just want to run, you know? Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, this is a two hour run, I'm off, this is easy, I just think about running and nothing else. So, so there we go, long answer to a simple question. No, it's interesting though, because I mean, we're all 
most of us aren't uh, aren't Damien Hall, and most of us probably aren't even uh, Darren Ann Finn writing a book about ultra running. So sort of trying to fit it in around your normal life, mm-hmm. where it's it can't be as important as your family or your yeah. job and, and things. So to suddenly embark on something that's going to require great long races. Did we, were you running you know, for hours as training runs, or did you just do more shorter runs? Yeah, I mean, I didn't. I, I never felt like I fully trained as much as I should have done, which right. is probably what every runner, or ninety percent of amateur runners, say about every race they do. So I ended up doing quite a few four-hour runs. Was probably the longer. I did one six-hour run with Damien actually, right. uh, which is was his weekly run. So he's doing a six-hour run every Friday in the Brecon Beacon. So I did one of those with him. But on my own, my usual runs would be two or three hours, and then I did about three or four four-hour runs in the build-up to the UTMB. But yeah, I had the same. I had the same issue. I've got three children, and you know, my wife is. You know, I, I spend half the week in London working anyway, so I'm away from home there, and then I go home, and then I'm like, right, I'm going to go off <laughs> a six-hour run on <laughs> Sunday morning. She's like, well, you know, your kids, you know, you've got kids, remember, and I've been looking after them all week. So, uh, but while it was my book project, yes. I had this excuse. So right? I had to, well, you know, I've got to run these races. I mean, I can't, I can't not run these races now. I'm committed to this. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, I do, I do wonder those people who are doing it purely for their own personal, you know, development, their own experience. Yeah, it's 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 hugely impressive that they're they're managing to fit it in. And I mean, not everyone's got families or young children, but those who do, and lots of them do. It's, you, it, I think you've got to embrace early mornings. I mean, the times I did do my four-hour runs, I usually got up at 4 a.m. That was the best way to fit it in because by the time I've kind of limbered up, put some clothes on, I, I used to like to do them. I live in Devon. I used to do them on the Coast Park, drive to the Coast Park, run and get back. It was it was going to be a six-hour you know, exertion. Yeah. Excursion. So uh, if I got up at four, I could be back by you know ten and <laughs> not, not impede my my family's day too much. Yeah, and like we said, you, you know you're a good runner. You know under an hour for ten miles, you, you run well under three hours, haven't you, for the marathon? Yeah. How did you rate your sort of competitiveness as an ultra runner? Were yeah. you were you good at it? I'm not as good as I was hoping, actually. <laughs> I mean, Damien Hall. We've talked about Damien, so I'll bring him up again because he was uh, he was a bit of an inspiration when I first started because he was. Uh, he kind of started ultra running as a journalist as well. He was right. a freelance journalist. He was worked for a hiking magazine or something, and he got asked to do a few runs, and he liked it. And and when we compared our shorter distance times, they're actually about the same for 10k and half marathon. Right. So I thought, well, he, he's a journalist, gone into ultra running, and look at him now. I mean, he, you know, he ended up fifth in the UTMB, which is yeah, pretty pretty amazing. So I thought, yeah, maybe maybe I'll discover this that I'm brilliant at it. But I, I was, I, I was a lot worse. I'm better at marathons and half marathons. I'm probably better at 10k's. Since the further I go, the further back in the field I am. So, oh, okay. uh, so I wasn't very competitive at all. <laughs> and it, the UTMB was my last race. I, I, without spoiling the book, I did finish the race, but I was. Uh, I was something like 23 hours behind the winner <laughs> and about 20 hours behind Damien Hall who has a similar 10k time to me so I don't think 10k speed has that much bearing on, on 100 mile races in no. mountains as far as I can tell Was it also the, the technical stuff? Do you enjoy the clambering and scrambling and climbing yeah, aspect? Yeah, I mean I, I started off being very bad at that stuff particularly the descending and I did work on it and I did get much better and to the point where the descending was actually my strong point I would right. be passing people 
even the French runners who are famously much better than the British runners at descending, I would be passing them. So it wasn't that in the end. I thought that was it at one point, but right. then but then I managed to uh, improve. I think it was. It's probably. I think ultra running is something you get tougher, you get tougher the more you do, you, you get better at it. I mean, I definitely, the UTMB was my last race, but the one before that was probably my best race. I ran the Lavaredo Ultra in Italy, and I can't remember my position, but I was fairly high. I was, I was pleased with myself. I was like four or five hours under my target time. Right. And I felt like there I was getting it. I felt like, okay, now I'm getting this idea. I'm getting the sense of what it takes, how often to eat. There's a, there's a steep learning curve when you first go into ultras, especially if you're like me and you're quite a good runner and you say you think you know what you're doing. Yeah. And I didn't. Uh, so I think mindset plays a big role as well. I feel like I was giving into my mind a lot. Like right. you, you get to the point where your mind is saying, you can't do this. You yeah. Just, you know, forget it. You're not cut out for this. You should give up. You should sit down here. You should take a break. And I was just giving in, giving in, giving in. I don't know how those guys at the front, I talked to them, you know, Damon and other people, I spent a lot of time talking to Zach Miller, he was a US ultra runner, and he said he's just stupid, and he just tells him, he just gets angry with himself, he tells himself to keep going, and I would, I'd set out like, alright, I'm going to, this time, I'm going <laughs> to be tough with myself, I'm going to tell myself, when, it, when I start saying, oh, you shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing this, I'm going to say, no, no, I'm going to do it, but I would just give in each time, I'd go, yeah, this is stupid, <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have a, I mean, obviously I had a good enough mentality to finish, and I did actually end up finishing every race, which is, you know, when these races have a dropout rate of 40% yeah. usually, that's something. So you were able to cope with the sort of darkness, the mental... In some way, yeah, but I, I did, it did slow me down, and it did, I did find it a struggle, but it, I was strong enough to get through it, but... Uh, Did you also enjoy that sort of zen thing that I've heard? I've not done anything longer than a marathon myself, yeah. so, you know, did you get to a place where you were just on a different plane? Yeah, you do, you really do. And what's kind of weird is that when you usually... So in the UTMB I got to this point, after many, many hours of struggle and, and, and depths of despair and being on the point of giving up and wanting to give up and desperate to give up, I came through the other side to this, I was still going quite slowly, but definitely a Zen state where everything just felt really peaceful, really calm, to the point that when I got to the finish, I was slightly disappointed that we were finishing. I was in such a nice space. I could have, I almost wanted to carry on. Yeah. Almost in perpetual. It was, uh, yeah, we saw the town and I was coming down and, oh, oh, we're finishing now. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be back to reality, dealing with, like, finding my bag and getting a shower. And, well, there's, I think there, there must be something. There must be something of appeal. One of the, um, the bits of blurb that I've read about your book says, you know, um, ultra running is now a, th a thriving global industry. Is it an antidote to modern modern life or a symptom of a modern illness? Mm. Um, and and I think there must be something about the escapism. Of, yeah. If you're if you're away running for you know a day and a half, yeah. you can't be texted. You no. can't have any responsibility yeah. for anything else. So it's yeah. quite a nice. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mention that earlier, but that's a another good reason I think people do it is it just takes you to a place which we're not used to going in, in the modern world, particularly in the Western world. Yeah. Uh, where you're yeah, you're you're not only are you away from technology and, and dealing with all the issues, but you're kind of everything's so comfortable in life, everything's so you know, we, we have a nice we're having a nice cup of tea here, everything's you know, the temperature's just right. Yeah. To to suddenly be tested and pushed and 
it's that, that's part of the antidote to modern life as well, and that, that kind of, there's something, it's not necessarily pleasurable and enjoyable, but there's something intense about getting into that space, and also very satisfying to come through it, and, and, and you feel like you've been somewhere, you've journeyed, you feel like you've changed, you can, even in one race, you can feel like you've come out a different person, somehow stronger I- internally yeah. than you were when you went in, which is quite an amazing thing to go through in a weekend. <laughs> Yeah, did you um, did you have to cope with real thinking on your feet, like, oh, I've, I've injured this part of me, I'm way up a mountain, how am I going to get to the next place safely? That, that real kind of life yeah. and death sort of decision-making on the run? Uh, not really. Most of my moments of crisis were pretty much only going on in my own head. <laughs> I thought, you know, I thought I was broken. I thought I couldn't take another step. But yeah. actually, I mean, there were times there was one on top of trying to think through them but in, in one of my 100 mile races I was completely frozen at the top of a mountain but I just kept going that was it I mean I didn't didn't do anything particularly clever to get out of it I just kept just kept moving but I was I was shivering I couldn't eat you try try to eat the tiniest thing and I just start gagging so I spat it out but right usually you just keep yeah I didn't I didn't have any clever solutions to <laughs> but you do feel afterwards that you've come through a real test, in, yeah. and, and you've passed. Well, you know, it's all relative. Like, like I say, I was, I was often amazed by how far I was behind the leaders, and like, how do those guys do that? Because I've been pushing myself and pushing myself, and I'm like, like I say, 20 hours behind. But, but to come through it still, to finish, to get to that finish point, to arrive back in the town where it all began, and you've been around, you know, a whole mountain range. Yeah, it leaves you feeling like you've achieved something and, and you've maybe learned something about yourself. Have you changed anything about how you run? Because you know, you, when you ran with the mm. Kenyans, I think it had an effect on your, your yeah. sort of style of running and things. Yeah. So just not from running ultras directly, but I do carry on my journey into form and efficiency and, and strength. Through the, the first two books, I, so I had this whole experience where I read Born to Run, I yeah. saw that the Kenyans ran in this lovely four-foot way, and so I started running like that and I got an Achilles injury. Uh-oh, the bells of recognition are sounding again. The ghost of Vassos lurks. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. To be joined now by the spectre of Adaranan's Achilles. I carried on running like that and I still run like that today. But uh, it does put a lot of strain and it. The more people I talk to, the more people have had this same experience. Either their cast or the Achilles become problematic when they start running four foot first. Mm. And so that was something I've been grappling with. Uh, particularly feel slightly responsible because I, I think a lot of people said, oh, I read your book. In fact, there's, there's someone in Spain has even produced a shoe with no heel. So it's completely, it's got no heel. It looks completely bizarre. It almost looks like a high heel shoe. Yeah, I think I've seen you Most, tweet about it. Yeah, and he, he says he got inspired after reading my book. So, <laughs> I mean, the shoe may or may not be brilliant, but the fact that people are changing their money form and then getting hurt, partly after reading my book it makes me feel like oh god I still I still think it is the best way to run but it's not very easy and it's not as easy as Chris McDougall certainly made it sound yeah that you just take your shoes off or wear minimal shoes and, and you're away there's uh, there's a lot of complications and, and, and issues to do with how we move in the rest of our lives how we lived our lives the fact we wear shoes the rest of the time the fact we sit in chairs uh, compromises our form so I explored this further and I finally got rid of my Achilles problem and I got to the point where I can run completely pain-free in a four-foot 
way, which I think is, is much more efficient, uh, feels much better. I explored lots of things, but the two things, without going into huge detail on them now, there's, there's something called anatomy in motion. Yeah. And have you heard about that? When I first emailed you about doing this in- yeah. interview, is because I'd heard you talking on another podcast and referred to your Achilles injury and having yeah. met this guy, Gary Ward. Yeah. And I, I couldn't get to see Gary, but I've seen a woman called Helen Hall oh, yeah. on I your recommendation yeah, yeah. because I've had a long-standing Achilles injury. Oh, okay. So when you mentioned it, all the kind of alarms went off yeah, and thought, yes, this yeah. is exactly the thing yeah. that I'm suffering with. I was hoping for a solution. I yeah. kind of listened to you on a podcast yeah. and thought, brilliant, he's got the yeah. answer. <laughs> Let me go and get it. And obviously it's been a much longer process than all of that. So I'll be interested to hear um, your two learning yeah. points. But uh, at the moment I'm with Helen, I'm running downhill yeah. and walking back up, yeah. trying to get me effortlessly stacked on top of my okay. uh, self. So running sort of vertically. And I think the next thing I'm moving on to is the, the width in my, um, I think my okay. tracking width might be a bit narrow okay. and my feet bashed okay. together. So, so you know. she's taking one one section at a time? I think so, yeah. Because, yeah, so I went to see Gary himself, so he's the guy who came up with the anatomy of motion. Yeah. Uh, and he recommended Helen because he said she, he, he doesn't particularly apply it to running necessarily. He, he, he came up with it and he thinks he thinks there's a limited, he says uh, basically our movements dictated by our bone structure. So actually the, uh, the number of movements we can make uh, are not that, it's not that infinite. So there's a set number of moves which we can, which often our movements compromise from something that's happened to us in the past, usually an injury or, or an accident, or, but it can just be sitting at a desk all day for years on end and never, never walking around. Uh, so it's just your body starts compromising its movement and then gets used to this new pattern that it's learned, uh, either to protect itself because of an injury or because of lifestyle. And so all he's doing is showing your body its full range of movement and creating that understanding in your brain that this is what I can do, this, and in doing it in a very controlled, safe way. Yeah. So your brain goes, okay, that arm does rotate all that way, for example. Yeah. And that's fine, it doesn't hurt. We can do that, we don't have to keep protecting. So I'd broken my left wrist three times. And in effect, my whole movement was protecting my left wrist, even though I last broke my wrist 15 years ago. I just got into this pattern where I wanted every movement was trying to protect my wrist. And we found that if we uh, we kind of told my brain that my wrist was fine, partly by, by holding it and massaging it, and partly by these movements, my whole range of movement, my strength even, in, in strength tests, increased hugely. And, and the, the movement range of my feet, for example, doubled through, through showing my brain that my wrist was working okay, which was interesting. And, and I found I had a bit of a miracle cure, and I accept not everyone's going to have a miracle cure, but I went from seven years of Achilles pain to one week later never having a sore Achilles ever again, which hasn't come back, and that's about two years ago. So. Fantastic. So it's quite good. The other thing I did, which I think in, to me works in a similar way, without getting into the finer details, is a thing called Feldenkrais, which is quite an old technique. It was developed, I think, by a Polish guy called Feldenkrais. And, um, he might not be Polish. Feldenkrais people are going to be going, what's he talking about? <laughs> Feldenkrais was Israeli not Polish. 
Sorry, Feldenkrais fans. But he developed it quite a long time ago. But it's the same thing. It's about showing your brain the body's full range of mo motion and movement in a controlled, gentle way. So your brain isn't trying to protect the body. Because the brain's job, one of its jobs, or one of your body's jobs via the brain, is to protect itself so you don't get hurt. And if it feels like there's a weakness somewhere, it will, even though that weakness may be gone, if it's got used to that weakness, it will, uh, it will attempt to protect you, which in turn is going to in inhibit your movement, your full range of movement. Yeah. Is the Feldenkrais technique a, a mental sort of technique, or is it a more it's a physical mental, manipulation? It's, it's more. Well, I only did one Feldenkrais session, so I'm, I'm much more up to speed on Gary's stuff. But what right. they did is they manipulated. So Gary gives you these movements yeah. that you do that that show your body its its full range of movement. So you just do it. I mean, it's simple. It doesn't hurt. It's not it's not a strain. No. Well, Feldenkrais, they, they manipulate you, they lie you down, and they the practitioner manipulates you right. herself. But again, very gently, just so I had, I've, I'm not quite sure how it all connected to the wrist, but also my, so it, that cascaded down to my hip mobility, so I had quite limited hip mobility. So both of these techniques worked on my hip mobility, but in a very gentle way, and that just freed everything up to to work as it as it worked. And I've I have had people, you know, comment on the fact that. Like my, my brother, for example, we ran a park run together, and he's we're similar level runners, and he we compete a lot. And he said to me after, and this was after I'd been with Gary, and he said, uh, you know, you for years you've been writing about running form, and he said, but I, I always thought you had terrible running form, <laughs> despite that. But I didn't want to say anything, but actually today you look completely different, and it was really interesting because yeah. I hadn't consciously tried to change anything. All I'd done with these movements, and I still do them every day. Because okay, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, Helen, when she's spoken to me, has said, you know, she doesn't want running to be um, a sort of mental exercise of thing. I must do this. I must stand up this way. I yeah. must be holding. You know, it shouldn't be yeah. a, a thing that you're trying to force your body to do. Yeah. What, what the drills that she's got me doing, yeah. uh, which are similar. I've got lots of broken things on my left side, dislocated left shoulder, and yeah. so similar things which have affected uh, lots of my lower body yeah. soft tissue because yeah. all, all the upper body aches and pains have kind yeah. of affected how I hold myself. So these drills are to try and enable me to start running in the way that I probably did when I was four years old and yeah. just ran. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let your body run sort of naturally how it wants yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. Because when I first started out on the changing my running form, I was doing very consciously. I was very much thinking upright, yeah. feet landing under my, he under my hips, where my eye position was, all this, all this stuff. And while I may have been doing that all right, I think I would be doing it right initially, but then as soon as you start getting tired, it all starts falling, yeah. falling to pieces. Whereas, yeah, I mean, there was some research recently that said you're, you're better off looking at the scenery your form, you, you, it's more efficient for runners who look at just look at the scenery than focus on their form. Okay. Because focusing on your form is basically less efficient than doing nothing because okay. because of all the thought processes involved and, and that's inhibiting your ability just to run. Now, I mean, people who work on form will say, well, you only do that in, you don't do that when you're running seriously. You only do, you, you think consciously when you're running easily. Yeah. And and there is an element of truth to that, and you can. There are certain things you can think about, cadence, for example. 
but yeah I, what I loved about Gary's stuff and the Feldenkrais they just do the movements and then you go and run and you don't think about anything else and, and the impact was, was big yeah. brilliant well that's encouraging good because at the moment I'm at the stage of you know hoping that uh, six months seven months or so from now I'll be able to run yeah. the Bob Graham round uh, but at the moment I'm just doing short right. drills running right. downhill and so you know I've got a long way to is that because that's what Helen's asked you to do or because they're yes. it's not working very well uh, no I think um, my, my Achilles has just been stubbornly painful right. and I think so I'm just sort of slowly reintroducing yeah. running with hindsight I can see the whole of what I've done with Helen's help, but at this time I think I just felt lost and unsure what on earth my body was doing. Yeah, because when I started this whole ultra running project, I had very sore Achilles. I'd actually developed a heel spur. A heel spur is a bony outgrowth on the heel bone. When your foot's exposed to constant stress, calcium deposits build up on the bottom of the heel bone, causing this deformity. Lifestyle modification is typically the basic course of management strategy, so seeing a Gary Ward or a Helen Hall and addressing your posture and movement is probably the best course of action. And that would bring from running marathons, and I was thinking, I'm, I'm about to embark on ultra running, two years ultra running, how the hell am I going to get through this? Yeah. And a lot of people have said to me, how did you do two years of ultra running and not get injured? Well... I, I mean, I can't put it all down to this, but I do feel like this played a big role, getting the Achilles fixed, uh, and then, which that allowed me to run in this for, way that I think is still, right from the very beginning, with the born to run and running with the Kenyans, I think landing on forefoot first, not landing on your heel, if you do it right and you can work at it and you can get everything moving in sync, is, is I wouldn't say the best way to run, but for most people would be would be a better way to run. Uh, I wanted to ask you about was um, ultra running being a, a sort of money pit. Did, did you end up buying oh. loads of new kit? Were there things that you kind of came away thinking, yeah, that is that is fantastic. I'm yeah. really pleased I bought that. Or other things that you thought, what a waste of money. Yeah, I mean, it's not probably compared to a lot of sports, it's still fairly cheap. But it, yeah, you, there is more kit than in than in regular running. You've got to, you've got to buy a good bag. The one I had had a, a huge water bag. I think a five liter water. I think they call it a camel back, or yeah. something, which goes behind your back, and uh, that is good in that it was actually fit quite snugly on your back, and it meant you didn't have to refill up at every aid station. Yeah. So that were the advantages of it. It meant when you did need to refill it up, it was quite fiddly, and you had to take the whole bag off, take the whole bag to pieces. But I was once I had invested in this bag, I was kind of stuck with it. So that was kind of good and bad. For a long time, I resisted the uh, hi the hiking poles or running poles that a lot of runners use in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Partly this is because I, I didn't want to accept the fact that really ultra running, particularly in the mountains, there's a lot of walking involved. In my head it was still ultra running, not walking. Not yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I didn't like the idea of having hiking poles, but in the end I, I gave in, I got some lecky poles, and they were great. I mean, they're just such beautiful bits of uh, kit. They've like, got this cork handle and this, <laughs> these bright red and yellow sticks, and I felt quite good moving around in them. Yeah. And they do help. I mean, I didn't use them on the descents. I found my, my descending got to a point where it was fine, but on the ascents, it was like, it's almost like having a rope to pull yourself up on or something. Yeah. It definitely helped. And weirdly, a lot of the very fastest ultra runners don't seem to use poles, but I, to me they were they were a big help. Like Killing Jone doesn't use poles, and Zach Miller doesn't use poles. Okay, but they're sort of race legal, are they? In most ultras, you're just yeah, allowed. yeah. I mean, you don't need them on the flat. So yeah. if it's a flat ultra, you wouldn't need them. But on the on the hills, yeah, they're a big help. So you put some of that effort into your arms. Yeah. Shoes, I mean, shoes is you know the same way. But I did end up. 
it's quite how barefooty minimalisty are well, you with well, your shoes? Ironically, I ended up running hokas, which are maximalist, which which is quite interesting because they are allowing you to run fourth at first because they're zero drop. Right. But they've got big cushion heels. But I just found initially I was running in, so I still run most of the time in very minimal shoes, and marathons on the road. Mm. But when I was running for more than 10 hours at a time, the soles of my feet were just getting so sore that it was compromising everything. Not only was it hurting in itself, but yeah. then I was trying to run in a way which I wasn't landing on my feet, which is yeah. almost impossible, which is impossible. But then I could just feel that everything was tensing up on every footstep. And so I tried a pair of hokas and they just took that out of the game so I didn't right. have that problem with my feet burning because of all the extra cushioning but they're not what most minimalists would use but I think most people don't run as you know 20, 30, 40 hours at a time Yeah. the first few I did I ran in very thin soled Salomons and uh, near the end of the race I'd look at these people with these big padded soles and I thought oh god that just looks just what I want right now <laughs> I'd give anything for that and so I, tr I gave in I tried it and yeah, it helped Richard Asquith, uh, author of uh, Feet in the Clouds, uh, the book on the Bob Graham, is a friend of yours. You run with so this is not the first time Richard has been mentioned on the podcast by me and other guests, so obviously I was keen to talk to him, and at the start of 2019, our negotiations via email had already been going for seven months. I think BBC News would have described them as protracted. Hi Richard, I'm a radio producer, keen off-road runner, together with a group of like-minded friends who've been spending a Hi Bob, thanks for your email. I'm happy to help in principle, but I absolutely can't take anything else on at the moment. I'm drowning in impossible death. Hi Richard, hope you're well. Just trying to organise some recordings for my BGR podcast. Are you in London regularly for work? Hi Bob, thanks for your email. Basically, no. I'm very rarely in London for work. Hi Richard, thanks for your honesty. I'm dropping in on Nicky Spinks in November. Perhaps I could come to you on the way. Hi Bob, I live in Northamptonshire. It's possible. But let's leave options open until we find something that works. So, options left open. I will resume contact in the spring and I will get Asquith on the podcast. I'm glad I did. He was brilliant. That's to come later. Have you ever talked to him about the Bob Graham? Yeah, well, we haven't talked that much. I actually, so we ran a, we organised a running and writing retreat in Dartmoor, which we may well do again next year. But Darren and Richard continue to do running retreats together. He tweets about them, so you can find details there. So that's the first time we've hung out properly. I did once interview him at the London Sports Festival of Sports Writing or Sports Book Festival or something. Right. That was the first time I met him. That was when his book Running Free had just come out. So we talked a lot about Running Free at that occasion. Yeah. And then on our writing retreat, we didn't really talk about the Bob Graham much, but I did notice we did a lot of running on, on Dartmoor, which is quite hilly, and uh, he turned up, he was very worried about running, said he hadn't run at all for ages, and we were running up the hills, and he was kind of struggling, and then as soon as we hit this big descent, he was just gone, and he, he still had the, right. the technique, and then he was saying, yeah, after running with the fellow runners, you, you, you get this understanding of how to descend on, yeah. on the trails. In Running Free, he talks about the sort of stages of running in, yeah. in his life, and, he, and he's at about stage six or seven, which yeah. I think I think was like don't wear a watch anymore yeah. you don't really care about it you just want to yeah. get out with your dog and yeah. uh, enjoy the scenery where where are you on the stages of running yeah I'm not there I think I was on stage two or something <laughs> still <laughs> obsessing about times and yeah. Strava and this sort of I thing. mean I, I've never been that obsessed with the watch I, I remember when I went to Kenya thinking oh I'd be among my brethren people who don't wear a watch and I was the only person who didn't have a watch so they 
But I, and I, I now I use Strava, but only really. I don't, I don't let myself be dictated by it. I don't try and clock up miles or run certain routes to break times. I, I'm fairly relaxed, but I still, when it comes to a race, I feel like I need that. I, I love that competitiveness. I love that sense of shooting for a goal. Even in the ultra runs, I'd set completely arbitrary goals, and then I'd be killing myself to get them. The funny one was in the Comrades Marathon because they give you different medals according to what time you run. Right. And I actually didn't know anything about that, like the specific medals, until I was almost in the race. I mean, the day before, people started telling me about this. These different races, these different medals, and different times. And at one point, I realised I was getting quite close to the cutoff for this medal called the Bill Rowan Medal. And, uh, and so I was like, right, well, I've got to get that. I don't want to get that. And the next medal was called the Bronze Medal. And I was like, no, I want to get the Bill Rowan. And it became, even within that race, it became such an obsession that I realised I was killing myself to get a Bill Rowan, even though two hours ago I didn't really know what it was. <laughs> it now was the sole focus of my existence, was to get the Bill Rowan Medal. Yeah, I, I guess yeah, we, some of us need competition, yeah. a, a race scenario more than others, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine eventually just enjoying going, out running along the cliffs and in some ways I quite you know look forward to that time but I do enjoy the competition I do I find myself in ultra runs or in any run but particularly in ultras because I, ha- I guess I had targets and goals in the shorter distance it just suddenly it would come to me halfway through the race someone would say are oh, you in 150th I go right I've got to finish in the top 150 or see so can I get to the top 100 or something and then that would become the goal and that would push me on because I with ultrons you can just go very slow you can walk and you still get there eventually and I needed something to keep keep pushing me I just wanted to do as well as I could so I'd set these goals and yeah so I'm still competitive yeah or try you know, in my own world yeah. <laughs> as my Kenyan friend would say, say we're all champions in our own world What a great guest Adaranand was, really generous with his time and I loved all the stories that he gave me from, at this point, an unpublished book. Like I said earlier, it is out now in a new edition, bargain paperback. Also, maybe I can take a small amount of credit for inspiring Adaranand to get involved with the lucrative world Okay, just the world of podcasts, because he's announced a few days ago, January 2020, now, right up to date, that he's making his own podcast, just like everyone else in the world. It's called The Way of the Runner, and the first episode has running snooker legend Ronnie O'Sullivan as the guest. I've already listened, it's very good. Next week on this podcast, the adventure and running writer Duncan Craig. And where have you run? Where's the best places that you've been in the world running? I think uh, the Sahara would be an obvious one. I did the Marathon de Sable back in 2007. That's something I won't ever uh, forget. I've run in the Arctic and probably, to be fair, I've run almost everywhere that I've travelled to. Mm. Uh, I I find it a wonderful way to get under the skin of a destination. Mark and I and the rest of the team continue to slowly train through the gloom of winter 2019 and that weird February heatwave. Keep reminding ourselves it's still only February. More warm sunshine to come and the potential for more exceptional temperatures.